Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Today's guest is Dan Raju. Dan is the CEO and co-founder of Tradier. Dan has an extensive career. Over 25 years, he started three companies, uh, one of which was sold for close to $300 million. Dan has an extensive knowledge of the financial sector, and we talked about how things work, how it works when you place a trade to buy or sell a stock, the globalization, the impacts of inflation, we covered a lot of ground. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dan. And if you do, please like and share the podcast with others. It genuinely helps us to grow. And we want to bring on more and more better guests. With that, I hope you enjoy the show. Here is Dan Raju. All right, Mr. Dan, I'm excited to chat with you. I uh, would love to hear a little bit about your previous success before we jump into uh, what you're currently working on. Um, you mentioned you were an entrepreneur yeah. three times. Uh, <laughs> how, how did, yeah, how did you sort of get to where you are now? Oh, hey, thanks for having me, Mike. Really appreciate it. Um, yeah, I mean, I have been uh, born and brought up in India. Uh, I, have, I have a bachelor's in chemical engineering, I have a master's in computer science. Um, I've been a, I've been an entrepreneur uh, all my life. I guess I get get a little bit of this from my parents. I guess my parents were all uh, were were all in the paper manufacturing side of things. You know, mostly on the industrial side of innovation. I ended up more on the software and the computer side of things early in my career. But uh, yeah, I started my journey uh, you know, right out of my master's. I, I had built a small startup, uh, mostly around you know how to keep servers available twenty four by seven. You know, that is a, that is a world where, where that is the kind where just the enterprise stack that we think of today was just being created. So I thought availability and making systems available was a crucial requirement for most companies. So I built a company, a small company, um, you know, learned more than I, than I, than I got when I sold it, but still did well financially. So to sold that company in the late, uh, 1999 timeframe. Um, and then I did a couple of, you know, I was, a, I, then I was good. I thought I was good in technology. So I, I ended up, I'm not doing another startup. And then for a while jumped into the enterprise side of things. I did some senior roles in, on the, on the retail side. I was, uh, I ran technology for borders, bookstores, when all of us used to read books, I guess at that time. Um, I played the senior technology role in Associated Press, uh, running ops and stuff like that. And then, you know, Somewhere in the late 2008, 2009 timeframe, you know, I felt like 
you know, the stack that really need to be changed ground up was the financial sector, right? I mean, there was innovation had hit most of the um, verticals that run our society today, you know, whether it's retail or, uh, you know, supply chain, transportation. But I felt like the financial uh, infrastructure of this country was was really very mundane, very burdensome, very archaic, dominated by players who've been doing this for for decades. And I felt like I could add some value. So, you know, join hands with some great entrepreneurs. And, you know, I was a part of the whole, uh, what was that time, Trade King. That's now Ally Invest at this time. Um, so, you know, we built uh, built an amazing, uh, helped build a very good business at that time. And so we, we sold that. What 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 uh, that, that asset right now is what you call as Ally Invest. Um, great learning lessons, right? You know, stuff, what to do, what not to do. How do you, all the way from... How much... How much did you sell for? Is this the three? I mean, I was I was not the original founder. I was I was I was a CIO, and also I put in some of a little bit of my money into it. But um, that that asset sold to Ally Bank for somewhere close to two hundred ninety plus million. So that was a uh, that was that was a uh, so great learning experience from from um, from from many many ways. Uh, but but that but that thirst for you know there's there is a way to re-engineer the stack. Of, uh, of financial services uh, was still, you know, was still important, right? It was, was important for me as a cause, was important for me as a mission. And I had seen some industries at that point of time rethink that stack. Uh, particularly, I was looking at Stripe, um, you know, from, of the, from the payment side, right? Um, and also looking at another company called Twilio from the, uh, from the um, what I call as the telecommunication side. All these firms had one thing that was important. They were taking an extremely legacy fabric that is uh, very mundane, archaic stuff, and they were abstracting that through APIs. And they're building a modern infrastructure so that anybody, entrepreneurs, could build build platforms. I mean, today, if you want to build a small you know, talking app, you could, you could build it on just a set of APIs, right? I felt like that same innovation of taking the web and rest-based technologies and abstracting a very burdensome fa- fabric, uh, that, 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 that what, I, what I call as picks and shovels kind of an approach could change the way financial industries uh, function. So I, the idea so idea you could abstract out Wall Street and make it simple, right, was, was a big mission. So I joined up with a few friends and we launched Trade Year at that time. Um, this is in the 2013-ish timeframe we started Trade Year uh, with a sole mission that we should take the way people, if we felt like if we really took out complexity from Wall Street, adoption would increase and we would become the infrastructure on the internet to do that. Today, you know, we've come a long way. Uh, today, we power over 200 plus companies. Uh, we process uh, billions of dollars of transactions per week. Um, we're one of the larger options and derivative brokers in the country with all a simple concept. If today you want we have taken investing from what's inside the four walls of the legacy brokerage firms like the Schwab's, the Fidelities, the TDs, and all those firms. So great businesses, but the act of investing is locked within their four walls, and we've opened it up so that hundreds of firms, if Mike wants to offer trading, Mike trading tomorrow, he can pop our API and offer it tomorrow. So that's so we we feel proud that we have regenerated the stack. Still long ways to go. And, and what what are you exactly integrating into uh, on the uh, when you mentioned the uh, you're abstracting the infrastructure layer, what, what would Tradier be connecting to the actual DAO or the Nasdaq or how would that technically work? Yeah, it's a, see what happens right now. 
right? So when you might go and go anywhere and place a trade as a retail investor, that goes through an entire journey. It happens in a fraction of a millisecond, but it just goes through an extensive journey. Um, at the top, somebody has to underwrite that trade, taking the risk on your behalf, and that's the broker dealer, right? Then that trade has to get verified through a whole bunch of what I call as verifications. And then it actually, in most cases, a lot of people don't understand that 99.99% of the trades never reach the exchange. When you place a trade today, 99% never touch the exchange. Um, they actually get settled through market makers, right? And the market makers settle those trades and then, and the market makers add a tremendous value because they settle it at an amazing pace. And all that infrastructure of all these market makers, the clearing firms, the broker dealers, the infrastructure, right? All that stuff has to get, all that stuff is what we completely go ahead and abstract. So we cover, we connect to all the exchanges in the country, all the major exchanges in the country. We connect to all the market makers. We have built that infrastructure completely on the cloud so that you can now literally, you can just, let's say you want to build an app today and we do some of these hackathons you, if you start now by by another twenty minutes, like we can let, we can actually offer your own platform. So that's how easy we have made it. Interesting. So the, the market makers that that effectively do ninety nine percent of the trades is is the concept that that when somebody issues a trade on some platform like Tradier, you're sending it to the market makers, and these market makers are so large and have such high liquidity that they then output like, hey, NASDAQ, here's, you know, a, a 30 million or $100 million buy for Apple, which is a, which is a. Oh, no, they're settling themselves. They actually settled. Okay. So, but what, what, what now is the purpose of them versus the purpose of the exchange itself? Like, how are they not the exchange? Yes, I mean, see, exchange is a very commonly used term, Mike. So, I mean, they have themselves. There are, you know, we call exchanges as the traditional data sources and the location where final settlement takes place. So what has happened is, I mean, you could call them exchanges if you if you think about it in that terms. But broadly speaking, what happens is they are the firms who are actually going ahead and bringing the buyers and sellers together in their own small marketplaces, right? And they're large. And you're talking about Susquehanna's, the Citadels, some of these, some of the largest Wall Street firms do that. And if the state there doesn't get settled, then it actually the trade orders go uh, for for liquidity to the exchanges. So there's this entire middle layer. Um, in their times when market makers created, they were abstracting out the original exchanges, if you think about it in that term, right? So they're 99%. A lot of people mis- misunderstand that stack. They think that goes to the exchanges more than majority of the trade never go there, number one. And number two is it's only because of that layer that is there that today you're able to click on a browser and place an order of a share or a fraction instantly. If you really dealt with the underlying exchanges, it, it would not settle that fast. Right, right. And so how would the, when I think of uh, Google.com, if you type in the Apple stock, it's going to show you the volume of trades made. How do they know that? How, how would like uh, the Dow or the S&P, how would that exchange, the S&P, how would they know how many trades are being made? You mean, how does each one know how many other trades other people make, you mean? Yeah, if, if, the way I'm understanding it, and tell me if I'm wrong, is that yeah. there's a, there's market makers that are receiving 
thousands of trade orders, buys and sells. They facilitate those transactions. And then they are somehow reporting it to the exchange, to the NASDAQ and the Dow. Because I'm not going to these market makers to see price updates, right? That's what maybe another yeah. way to ask it is what do what does the Dow and S&P do if they don't do trades? Right. So let me walk you through this. I mean, it, 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 it's, 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 yeah. it's, it's a fascinating stack. Um, so in most cases, when you're browsing on the internet, right, in most cases, so think about the, think about the stack this way. You are an end user, you're using some website or a platform, okay? That platform or website is getting its data from what, what the market call as market data providers. Right? There are a bunch of market data providers. Um, these folks, what they do is they go ahead and connect to the exchanges, and they connect to the exchanges and a little amount of aggregation occurs on their side where they are basically in order to produce a full portfolio of stocks, they are aggregating that data from multiple sources together. And, and the exchanges themselves also aggregate pools of exchanges data together. So together, by the time it passes through the exchanges and the market data providers, the end platform literally gets the full breadth of data around the 8,000 plus securities that are involved in the market today, right? That's how that stack functions. Um, and and people people who create market data plat- platforms have to deal with very really an interesting uh, question. Is do my customers need real-time market data or do they need delayed market data, right? Real, and, and what the breadth of the data they, they do. For example, you know, some platforms are dealing with penny stocks and bulletin boards and pink sheets. Most platforms are others dealing with, you know, the top listed securities. So depending on what your customer base is, you are trying to use this and pick the best, uh, the best market data aggregator to get the maximum coverage. But to, uh, how do exchanges say in sync? Now, uh, the exchanges have built, um, a relationship. It's called a SIP relationship where all of these folks actually report data to each other in real time and each exchange carries the data for all the, from, from all the other exchanges. And so it is through that SIP, it, it, it's a regulatory framework by which the, the uh, exchanges have to share information with each other and that, that gets reported to the aggregators and from the aggregators it reports to customers. So it's a, it's a complicated structure and, and depending upon whether people are using real time or delayed market data, um, you pick and choose which provider suits you the best. Interesting. That was a really good description. Uh, so, SIP, so there is a, a government regulation SIP in place to help pass on data for accountability purposes. Um, right. Do you feel actually like having? Go ahead. Mm-hmm. No, you got you go ahead. Yeah. So, Mike. So basically, um, what the and the way the regulators um, introduce that is kind of fascinating. Uh, what, what the regulators basically say that no platform or a broker dealer like us right should basically um should we should when a customer makes when you hit a trade button when you hit a trade button um you get a quote right hey you're going to place an order at this price that quote that is displayed to the end customer is by regulation required to be required to be a quote that represents more than 50 percent of the market so by default, you end up getting a SIP quote. And in order to offer the SIP quote, the exchanges kind of collaborate with each other and they, they actually go ahead and maintain a common SIP relationship. So in the way the regulation is, is fascinating if you study capital markets, how all this 
created. It's kind of created as a saying, the end customer should get a market code that is more than as as an accuracy of more than this. But in order to in order for them to receive the trade and to produce a quote that's basically that accurate, no one exchange goes 50%. So they all have to share information to give you a SIP code. So that's so it, 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 I, there is quote unquote, there is the set of regulation around SIP, but the way it got created in the market is fascinating. Yeah, that is fascinating. So uh, is that, are these like, is there a database somewhere that each one of them write to that, I don't know if you would know this, but uh, it sounds pretty deep in the rabbit hole. <laughs> but like, is that a, I mean, there would have to be, right? There's some canonical database that they each have like read and write access to. Right, right. It's and you know, this is, that's true. That's in the most simplistic way, that is 100% true. And some part of, you know, you hear this whole conversation about blockchain and how blockchain can change financial markets, right? And some part of that is not, some part of that is, is is about producing that more da- that data in a more effective way, right? A centralized ledger will actually create that data. That's an entire new set of innovation that's occurring in the market. Also, yeah, we'll some other conversation for some other day. But blockchain will bring the ex the world of execution and the world of data in in a much more cohesive fashion together. But yeah, at the end of the day, yeah. there's there's a SIP database for lack of better way to say this. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Like if you if you think about what what the problem is that the government, namely, and the exchanges were solving in the first place. It was, hey, we can't, we can't do this on our own. Well, the government first said there should be uh, a standard for delivering price quotes to people because if they're under fifty, what happens if they're under fifty percent? Like if you offer a quote to somebody, you're not allowed. It's, it's illegal. I mean, it's 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 you're against regulation. So, I mean, you see two different things. But you can offer. Practice. Yeah, you know, you can offer all kinds of quotes. I mean, you can just put whatever quotes you want to put in. But when only a broker dealer can accept a trade from a retail customer, he it's a licensed FINRA regulated entity, right? And that entity, before accepting a trade, is required by law to display a SIP quote. So that's how the, the uh, it, hmm. it's it's a policy and you know, like everything else, there is a policy and how do you impose that policy or how do you create the right mitigating control? It is a broker dealer who is held accountable before taking a trade to verify that the SIP code has been displayed to the end customer. And, and the purpose of this 50%, the reason why the government wanted uh, 50% is that the alternative risk is that if a broker dealer offers a quote to a retail customer and they say yes they buy it and then there's not enough liquidity in the in the market is that the idea it, it's it's built on the context of of transparency and accuracy of data the end customer is making the decision see that world that you you and i are right now chatting about mike is that that branch of that world is called self-directed right so you have discretion on your account that means you have taken money your own money and you're making decisions on it and the belief is that if you basically display data that is it that accurate then you're qualifying enough to make that decision but in reality what happens is there is still a concentration bell curve of exchanges in this market so in order to get to 70 by time by the time you attempt to get to 50 you almost you're you're 80 anyway because there's so much of concentration of large exchanges you know that that need you to get to 50 you end up becoming 80 plus anyway by that time mm, interesting um 
I want to ask you about the landscape. So today, obviously, things change quickly, and and crypto is a catalyst for accelerating that change. You started in 2012 or 2013, 2012, so a while ago. Uh, certainly, things must have changed from a product perspective in, in your roadmap. What do you see as the, uh, like, where's the battle being fought amongst trading companies such as <laughs> Tradier and other, like, what, what are you competing over? Is it speed or user interface or is, is there some, I, I paint the picture of like how, what you think about as, in terms of a competitive landscape today? No, it's a fascinating world. I mean, I never thought in my living life that I would see a congressional hearing about uh, retail traders, but uh, the world has changed so much. Now, more recently with the whole meme stock rallies that had occurred, right? People oh, right, 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 right. So, and I, I, but I'll tell you, this is what I see in the market today. See, when we jumped into this market 10 years or so ago, right, actually 15 years ago, um, the market, uh, Mike, was very, very organically brewing in nature, right? You had people who were just discovering that they could they could basically manage their own money, right? Money was managed a certain way. You would take your, you'd earn your money and you'd give it to an advisor and say, hey, manage it for me. He would take, he would take a, an arm and a leg out of that and but he would manage it for you. That's how my parents did it. I'm sure that's how most your parents or most parents would have done that. Um, by the late 2003, 2004, that thing had fundamentally changed. You had more and more people. Um, I, I call it the post-tech uh, influence, right? You know, the, the Y2Ks and all that, you know, the, 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 the internet had just kicked in. Firms were getting into it. Uh, people had just come out of the Y2K. A lot of tech force had basically been created. That for the first time in 2003, 2000 timeframe, you saw people, the demand for, hey, I want to manage my own money and I want to do it online at my own time, at my own pace, start kicking in. That market today has grown all the way to, at that point of time, roughly around, you know, a couple of million people doing it. To today, as it stands today, about 125 million people doing it today. That market has fundamentally shifted from a small can-do to almost the de facto way people invest. So if, if you want to invest in the stock market, you go and do, you go and open an account with somebody like Trader and Trade, right? That's how you do. Versus the de facto at that point of time was to give the money to someone else, right? So in this era of what has happened is, that that continued to grow. We had some ups and downs in the 2008 timeframe because of the economy. But by 2013, 2014, Mike, what had happened was the market got structured up. So you have the market break down into people who trade less than three times a month, people who trade between three and 10 times a month, and people who trade more than 10 times a month. And this category of people who trade more than 10 times a month first kind of got created during that time frame because a lot of people who used to work for the Wall Street firms had, had got laid off during the 2008 crisis, but they had that institutional grade trading skills and everything, and they all had jumped into the retail side. So by 2013-ish, you got this, you got this market more like people who trade heavily, people who kind of trade, and people who just trade less than three times. It's many of them like, if we take example, my wife, she'll trade once every year, right? So she bought Facebook in 2012 and she's the best investor, right? So 
So, so that's how the market got created. So that's how, and that kind of ran that the numbers kept on growing. Now, what has happened after to, what has happened during the pandemic is what has happened is um, starting 2019, a lot more younger generation people jumped in. And when 2020 hit, right, the world got locked up, right, in their houses. The, uh, the markets were hypersensitive, new cycles, and the markets were the only location people could engage with outside their working from home or if they had a job at that time. So all of a sudden, 25 million people jumped into doing active investing. So they jumped in from investing once or twice in a, in a month or zero times to start actively investing. So all of a sudden, this market of active investing totally got created. You So now you have, um, we believe, for example, some interesting stats that you'll find it fascinating. Um, around 25 million people came in since 2015. And about 12 million people after the pandemic started trading actively, right? So, so that means that engaging from, from zero to three, they're moving to three plus, trading more and more. And so what has, so the market today as it stands right now, you have a booming, and I'll tell you why I used this word before, the pandemic created a rapid graduation effect in the market. So traditionally people would come in, they'll learn for a few years and they start doing more and more trading over time. The pandemic just hypersensitive, connected at home, volatile markets, crazy news cycles, and boom, right? And working from home, convenience of working from home and being able to do what you do from home, you know, all of a sudden, this whole active trading market became very, very vibrant. The reason we talk about meme stocks and all that stuff as the roots are in this. The roots are not a bunch of, you know, young people reading on, on Wall Street bets and trading. That, that's, that is just a symptom of the problem, symptom of the change. The underlying factor is the pandemic created these meme stock rallies, right? And so now you have a very vibrant market of 125 million people, um, a very active people who set up people who trade more than 10 times, of a rapidly growing graduation effect in people trading between three and 10 times that's there in the market. And so now you have all the players in the market. You've got the Robin Hoods, the Stashes, the Acorns, and all these companies catering to that guy who comes and trades for the first time in the market. And then you have firms like, you know, uh, TD Ameritrade, Tradier, and interactive brokers and all of us, right? We tend to cater to the more active uh, section of the market. Um, and so everything goes, it gets introduced here and it moves here. This is where all the money is made, right? Where it moves to the upper side where the money is made. So crypto, if you take a look at it, you know, I was uh, I was actually looking at some numbers of, uh, earlier today, right? If you take a look at the, the, the crypto market, um, you know, roughly around the, the market cap during for crypto was fifty three billion dollars in 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 two thousand nineteen. It went up to close to seven hundred eight hundred billion in twenty twenty. In twenty twenty one, it reached almost two plus trillion, right? So when it comes to those kind of numbers, what happens is you now active traders will get into it. So what I see in the market today is players who are catering to that first time investor, players who are offering advanced capability like us who are catering to the, that market. And so I expect 2022 to the year, three things are going to happen. Um, crypto is going to get regulated. Don't And crypto is going to get regulated. Um, it's very good. A lot of people are afraid of crypto. It legitimizes that asset class. The best thing that can happen to crypto, ever, like I said, is to get regulated, right? I'm sure there's some turmoil that you can face through, number one. Um, and in, in fact, I believe the rise in interest rates is going to help the crypto market to a great extent, number one. I also expect 2022 to be the year where 
one specific instrument called options trading that you hear more and more of, right, is can, will continue to grow. And you're seeing that symptom. You know, the equity markets are slowing down the number of shares, but the number of options traded has, is, is going up. So that means people are doing more graduated investing. So I look at crypto, crypto regulation, people jumping into options. And one thing I do want to mention that I see in the market happening is a lot of people don't talk about it. The fastest growing segment in the U.S. market, as if you, if you identify today, is basically international accounts. A lot of international people are investing into the U.S. So guys living in India, right? He opens an account in a, on a U.S. brokerage firm, puts a few dollars there and trades in the U.S. markets. So the, the centralization of the global markets and U.S. being at the vertex of it, um, is, is becoming. And for, so the single, and, and you see those changes. The largest number of single segment that have opened up accounts in 2021 is not some subset in the U.S. It's actually international citizens, non-U.S. residents, um, coming into the U.S. Now, why that is fascinating is, you know, we are used to this, you know, action reaction cycle, Mike, where what U.S. policy impacts U.S. markets. You're going to come very soon, two years from now, what happens in, the, the, the regulatory policy in India or to that matter, Asia or Europe will start, in, start, will start having when that many people are coming in. So it's, it's, we're, we're through some interesting times. Yeah. Is that due to, I would imagine that the technical capability for international trading has been around for a while. Is it just that the people in other countries such as India don't have as many investment opportunities locally or, or some, there's a, some shift other than just COVID where people are in front of a screen more that has created an increase in international trades? Well, actually, I wrote a small op-ed about this on, on Nasdaq.com, right? So it's an, it's an, it's, you're absolutely correct. What, what happens, what's happening, Mike, is number one is that next generation, let's, let's take a, a kid in India or to that matter, Malaysia, right? He gets up his, gets up in the morning and he brushes his teeth with Colgate, right? I'm just making this story up. Then he, then he, then he's now he's got a car for the first time. He's, an American or associated branded car. So then they use Facebook, they use LinkedIn. So everything they do is actually coming out of here. So their want or their aspirational investing and investing is, investing is always aspirational, as you can imagine, right? That they, they, they connect with the U.S. brands. Plus, if you go to some of these economies, they work for a U.S. company, right? Mm. They're working for an IT for the, with outsourcing, right? How, a lot of IT tech people in that part of the world work for you. So, they are, so there is a need, there's a want to invest in U.S. securities, number one. And number two also is their lack of confidence in the local markets. The local markets, as much as we complain about our markets being extremely volatile, that's on the other end of things, right? So they don't trust the local markets. And lastly is if you had put in, if you had basically the, the for example, the dollar to the local currency exchange rate has become so bad that just by investing in a dollar, you're actually, that's a good investment for them compared to leaving it in the local currency. So that foreign exchange, number one, trust in the in the markets, their natural association, and all this is enabled by companies like, you know, I'm, there are other players, I'm not, this is not a trade year pitch by any means, but by firms like trade year who come and say, we make it super simple for you to launch applications. And so we kind of put fuel on that fire. And so that's what is causing that industry to boom. Hmm, interesting. Do you think that the the U.S. influence uh, is going to, more specifically, the U.S. business or the U.S. corporate influence is going to 
continue to grow or accelerate the rate at which uh, brands are admired by people in other countries? Or do you think that people in other countries are are now rapidly creating competitive brands that are uh, sort of displacing U.S. companies? I guess do you see because on one sense I could see I could see this playing out in two different ways, and either story is coherent to me. One, the world is now open. There's no walls. We're all building remote companies. We hire people all over the world. Wealth is redistributed to other parts of the world. When people get some amount of wealth, they can build. It's effectively free or almost free to start software companies. So then it's just a matter of confidence and intelligence and time. And then you have companies exploding all over the world. That would be sort of the case against a a continued consolidation of U.S. corporate. The other case, which I could see happening simultaneously, uh, interestingly enough, is that there's a there's a there's a people talk about this, but the the distribution of wealth, there's a lot of political agitation because people are witnessing these corporations uh, becoming more and more powerful. And it's like a law of distributed returns, where if you have 20 percent of the market, the chances that you're going to get to 50 percent is pretty high. And then there's like a I don't I don't love the word monopoly, but it references the idea of uh, continued gains based on those who have. And I could see that happening. I could see like large U.S. companies who own a lot of the infrastructure and have a lot of uh, IP just continuing to grow. What's your thought? Because those are those are kind yeah, of different. It's, 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 it's kind of a little bit, you know, where the market is going. There's there is local sensitivities and some geopolitics all combined into one large bucket, yeah. right? <laughs> so, <laughs> no, but, but this is my take on it. That's my take on it. I mean, see, the that trend of basically, if you think about from a retail investing perspective, particularly, right, of them interested in investor securities, is 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 the the benefits for U.S. corporations to have access to those markets, right? Access access to those markets, and how quickly we we are in a position to deliver it to them. And the gain in value that we create far outweighs, uh, far outweighs um, the far outweighs what I call as the risks of of of, of local intellectual property, through, you know, uh, theft or 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 basically dependency uh, risks that get created because of that. Right? It far outweighs. I mean, for example, I mean, we for example are just uh, we'll talk about we are launching crypto, right? The U.S. market has jumped into crypto two years ago. Folks like us who are coming in are coming in right now, and we have access to a much larger market because the aspirational component that comes into play. So I think at the end of the day, I think the, the benefits far outweigh the small uh, drivers and dependencies that you have to deal with, number one. Number two is I say this all the time. I was born and brought up in India. I was born and brought up in India, right? I came here for my studies and then since been working here. Uh, for the last 25 plus years, right? An average citizen in the U.S. is not global in nature. We don't think globally. We think um, all the way from the school, I see my kids, right? I mean, a kid in India thinks that when he gets to a job, he's going to compete against a kid in Alabama, right? Or a kid in New York, right? They think globally. They operate globally, right? I mean, I can tell you, I, at the age of, at the age of 15, you could name all 
130 countries, 150 countries, that, or every, and I would know the capitals. I would know the leaders. So they have a much more global perspective versus we have much more of a cocoon perspective, honestly speaking. So, um, so, so I think for them, they just don't look at services as local or international. I mean, I'll tell you, for example, if you ask, if you go to Asia and if you ask them, you know, hey, who makes your soap? They wouldn't know. It's a local or international company. They're looking. They that that demarcation is in the political circles. When 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 the when the rug hits the road, it, it doesn't really matter. So I think the the value of them getting access to your markets is far outweighs whatever issues we have to deal with. Number one, number two is I I I, I so the way I as far as uh, the way I see as far as the monopolization question that you had actually brought up. Right, what's going to happen is, and this is just my take on it. Um, it actually forces decentralization, right? It actually forces decentralization because what happens is you now have to operate. Um, you now have to operate. For example, you want to get access to the Indonesian market. You are going to have to deal with the local regulation and that's required, right? You want to get into the Chinese market. You want to get into the Indian market. You want to get into the Brazilian market. So what, what happens at that point of time is the firm Basically, because most of, for example, take a look at WhatsApp. I mean, WhatsApp is a U.S. company. I mean, majority of users are not in the U.S., right? In fact, I heard about WhatsApp from my friends in India, right? So, so what, what, what I'm, the point I'm trying to say is I think, um, this globalization actually kind of removes monopolization because it forces them to basically function as a, as a, as a subsidiary of, as a network of companies than rather than a single company. So I, I think it takes away the single policy. So why are we afraid of monopoly? The, the, the company comes to a point where it starts influencing its judgment purely. Its judgment is laid on everybody. But if you, it culturally changes a company to basically not think centrally. And so otherwise you just can't grow. So I actually think that uh, from that perspective, you know, from that perspective, I think it's 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 good. I I I'm I'm a global thinker from that perspective, so I, I'll always tend into that. And the dependencies will get through it, and the idea of this monopolization of large companies, right? Monopolized companies. If companies act like a monopoly, they can't be global. You just can't. You can't be global. Right. So that's what is the, that. What I see is a positiveness that comes out of this. Yeah, and especially when you think about monopolies, when I think about them, I, I have, I, I think it's a less common perspective on this. And I'm curious if you disagree, but I, I think of the influence of government regulation on companies can sometimes present a monopolistic effect where they block right. out due to regulation. And so you and I want to get together and start a company to compete with some internet provider down the street. Oh, we can't do that because there's only five providers in the area and there's no more allowed by law. We, we start it, we go to jail. And so there's, there's like a forced by gun way that monopolies are created. Uh, that is sometimes gray when there is high license fees to start companies, uh, you know, barriers to entry that the incumbents, the larger companies put in place because they have the political lobbying capability to do so. I, I view that as kind of very much, um, 
you know, it's, it's not a change in philosophy because even when you're small in a three person company, you think about how do you create barriers to entry? And so when you are a 30,000 person company, you're still thinking, how do we create barriers to entry? Now, one of the barriers is let's, let's spend $5 million on this lobbyist group and try to get these laws changed. That to me, seems like you're sliding into gray territory. Uh, however, I, I, I also view an underrated perspective on monopolies is that when companies get very large, aside from a regulatory cause, when they become very large and monopolistic, namely that there's not multiple players in the space that are significant, then they, two things tends to happen that people don't often talk about in my perspective. One is that there tends to be less incentive inside the company to compete. Who are we competing against? We're the winner. So so let's just kick back, you know? Let's just eat our Cheetos and watch the money pile in. And that creates fat. You lose the smart smart people, you lose the excited people, and then the, the service becomes uh, crappy. You know, people admit publicly, hey, the service of this company is no longer what it used to be. And now there's this built up, the second point is that th- there becomes this built up fuel to introduce an an innovator. And I view no company is more poised to be disrupted than one who has a monopolistic effect in the market. And I think generally politicians frame it as if you have a monopoly, you win and no one's ever going to be able to compete with you. And I I just don't see, I don't agree with that. I don't know. What's your... I I, I agree with your perspective. I agree with your perspective. You know, I... I, I, um, Whenever... Whenever a company comes to a point where where it does not need to get customers in order, it does not it does not feel the need that it needs customers, but 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 can but can still have a healthy business prospect. That means it's time that in that 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 industry that is up for that that is up for disruption, right? It, when it, when it, when it when it feels that it does not need all it has to do is keep doing what it's doing. And it feels like it's going to win. Then I think the, the situation of monopoly basically gets created. So I think, um, you know, I totally agree with you. I actually, a couple of statements that you made, right? Uh, a couple of interesting statements. Number one is that, um, you know, sometimes regulation enables monopolization. I, it's, it, it, the financial sector is, for example, you know, we, we were just having a conversation earlier about the SIP codes, right? I mean, that's an example where, if you want to do business in the U.S. markets, you have to deal with exchanges, right? So there's an example. You create a regulation, it creates a, some some centralization effect, right? And they, now, if you want to operate in the markets, you just have to buy the data from that source, right? So I think so. Those kind of situations, I think I agree with you. Regulation basically goes ahead and creates that. I I I so agree with that point. I also think that that businesses that feel like they just don't need to, all they need to do is to keep their existing customers, and then. That means that industry is eventually going to go ahead and 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 get disrupted, uh, and you know I've been that's actually one of the one of the reasons I jumped into the financial sector is exactly because of that there are five banks, I mean they control majority of the wealth in the country of yours and mine's and a parents' wealth, and and kind of define and tell you the way you're going to invest right, um, that's and 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 so the, what's happening in the market right now of this whole crowdsourced intelligence I call it this way where you have an idea, you validate that as a community. People talk like you and I are talking about, get our ideas out. We make our investment decisions. Now, I could be wrong, but eventually I'll be right. 
right? Eventually, I will be right. So, so I actually, I, 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 I totally agree that uh, you know. Uh, what's happening in the markets right now is actually is not only questioning uh, some of the way this monopolization gets created, but also force will, will force will force the regulators to think about laws, um, not in terms of you know avoiding monopolization, but I think in terms of empowering decision making occurring at the retail customer level. I think. Yeah, interesting take. Uh, I want to ask you something tangentially related. Uh, the interest rates are uh, a hot topic. I'm sure they've always been because they're essentially controlled in the U.S., uh, as in most countries, I would presume. When the Federal Reserve chooses to raise an interest rate, they're usually doing so because uh, because they want to... It acts as a break on the economy. Tell me if you disagree with any of this. I, I, I this. It acts as a break because people aren't going to take out high int- high loans uh, and when the interest rate is very low, the economy tends to move quicker, to grow faster. The interest rate has been very low for a while, uh, years, uh, multiple years, um, effectively at zero or pretty close to it. And the economy has been growing very quickly over the last few years. And we've seen a large inflation. I think the largest in 40 years since 82 was the number I heard. Uh, do you, do you feel that inflation, how do you view the, uh, current state and and what in particular, what would you say that we should collectively be aware of? Like what, what's important to understand about inflation and about interest rates and how would we recognize if politicians and federal reserve members, if they're making bad decisions, like what, what would it, what would that look like? What would what is bad? What does it look like to make a mistake here? See, this is this is what has happened, right? So pre-pandemic, I mean, we came to a point where the inflation was, I mean, l- less than two at one point in time, right? Mm-hmm. Super percent. So, I mean, that tells generally the industry and the regulators in general and the economists in general that the, the economy is not operating to its capacity. There's still a lot of jo- job potential in the market. And so there was this idea of, okay, we should go ahead and uh, we should go ahead and, you know, uh, you know, kind of there's some room for inflation, I guess, is one way to take a look at, but reduce the interest rates. It generally happens in a slow, slow way. The pandemic just gave the regulators uh, or or the, 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 uh, the, the government to just go ahead and make it zero because it served every purpose. The pandemic can make it zero, and it, 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 it's it's socially acceptable. It pumps a lot of money into the market, into the market, um, and so whether and it could be debated for years whether they had to go that low or not. I mean, there's a human element to all of this. Now, what happens is now you now you basically have the inflation picking up. I mean, you know, till recently, till a couple of months ago, it was at four. People are saying it's four plus percent in, in, uh, inflation. Now it's almost like January was at seven. I actually, I don't think this is my take on it. I, I personally feel like um, you expect the Fed to basically be crisp, um, very crisp, very decisive, and 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 very very logical. So when people, when when your life is dependent, my, my life is dependent on you. I need to be able to follow what Mike is saying, right? That's very important. What we're dealing with money, right? It's very important. I, I'm not personally totally sure that the amount of uh, confusion that has been created in the market for the last six months saying we might, inc- we might in- increase interest rates, 
We don't know when it's going to happen. It could happen. We are meeting in February. So this 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 long lasting what I call as lack of decisiveness has created extremely volatile markets. You see all the techs. So you know what happens is when interest rates go up. You know, um, tech companies got the guys who give the highest amount of dividends. So and a lot of these. Of hedge fund owners and portfolio managers invest in tech because it creates regular income for their clients, right? So when interest rates go up, what happens is tech companies reduce their dividends. When dividends go up, the income for the portfolios, people who own the portfolios goes down. So the moment the government talks about we might in, in, increase interest rates, people dump, right? The portfolios dump and it brings tech stocks down. But it, uh, And then when, when you're not doing it, then it creates this turmoil of going up and down. So I actually, I, I, if, I, if I, I speak about this publicly, I say I wish they didn't have to do all this. When they said they're meeting in February, um, they have to do it. And But they didn't do it. But what looks like they're going to do it in March. Who the hell knows? But but that being said, that being said, I this is what I expect to happen. I expect in 2022, the the interest rates the call the effective fund rate right the effective funds rate to go up in three iterations i think it's going to touch less than it'll touch about a, it'll be less than uh, i don't think the fed is going to just go back to high i think they're going to adjust it by 100 basis points this year so it's 40 40 20 or something like that um i think that just because that's what they seem to do they seem to always want to inch at something and inch back at it so i expect that to do but i think i really hope they do it because there's no avoidance to it, right? Why basically, why avoid it? So you can't, so there's no need for the economy to talk about interest rates going, coming high, not do it, face 7% inflation, and then now forcing yourself in February to do it. I felt like they should just have done it incrementally. And I think the, so plus that being said, I also say two other things. Um, the effect of interest rates going up is not going to be as much on the, in the on the retail markets as the world thinks it is for a couple of reasons. Um, for a couple of reasons. Number one, the retail market is large and people are much more sophisticated than, than, than they were before, number one. Um, and number two is people have got alternate classes of investments, crypto being a part of that, you know. So And, and so I think because of other asset classes that are being created, I think the jolt of an interest rate rate is not going to be as much as as much as we can, as much as we think it will. But I think they will they'll make a couple of interests. I really hope they do it crisply. Boom, 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 and it's done. Right. Mm. Um, that's how I feel. And one thing I also say is that that whole rally we talked about these meme stocks. There's a you know I was I was talking to a reporter. I think um, I think I, I I quoted this. I'm quoted quite a bit on this. Uh, I, I said you're not going to have those meme stock rallies anymore. You're not going to have, or you're going to have some of it, some people trading a particular stock and some little bit of, you know, pumping is going to occur in that market. But I just don't expect that many kinds of people are going to get into a Wall Street bets community talk and take GameStop up and down. I mean, this kind of stuff is just not going to occur for just anymore. It's going to be much, much lesser. I, I really yeah, yeah. It's, it seems to be a counterforce that was introduced after there was a, a strong consolidation of market influence by hedge funds, and there wasn't that balancing from the people. And so th- there was uh, opportunities there, right, where it's like, okay, there's, there's, a, there's a game going on, and the game is how can the hedge funds take advantage? I, I use the word take advantage, meaning that they're betting against companies. And so 
people, I think, realize like, hey, we can we can introduce a counterforce in the market if we consolidate. Reddit was the platform that it happened to happen on. Happen on. Right. But now I would imagine that the reaction to the reaction is that hedge funds and institutional investors are aware. So they're like, hey, we can't leave our neck out like that. Otherwise, there's guys who are going to hunt us down and make us pay again. And, and I'll tell you one interesting, the, the, one interesting thing as to why that force and counter force even got created. I'll, I'll get you some interesting Tell answers, me. Right? It's a, you people ask, like, uh, how did this counter force get created or for the hedge funds? I, 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 I'm not a big believer that there is a, there's a David versus Goliath battle going on. I just don't believe in that. But there's some battle going on, right? So, but putting that aside, um, and I call it basically decentralization of institutional capacity. So, see, majority of this trading that occurs are that creates these meme stock rallies are have more to do with options trading than they have to do with equity trading. Broadly speaking, right? And it's and so what has happened in the what has basically happened in the market is 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 for the first time retail and the technology in the hands of people, right? That is bandwidth. That is data. We spent quite a bit of time talking about data, the access to market data, insights, and research too. Institutional is looking inside and it's more structured research. This is crowd research, right? So every piece of aspect that is there in the institution has basically got created on the retail side for the first time. Research capability, tools, connectivity, data, and plus now what has happened, I'll give you an interesting stat. For the first time in history, for the first time in history in 2021, we saw days retail traders were 30% of the market volume. They as a single unit are doing 30% of the market volume, right? And you know what it was five years ago? Less than 5%, less than, if if it's 9%, it was way too much. And so now you have a larger set of people completely empowered with everything that, that they have, right? And and in, in an interesting way, this is their way of establishing a stake in the ground. And I look at all the repercussions of, you know, these conversations, congressional hearings, the regulators, and everybody talking about it. And I say, oh my God, the retail investor has finally arrived, right? He's, he's, he has everything that the other guy has and more. Yeah, yeah. Hey, boy, isn't that true across the board in other industries too? If I think of education, right? It's like, well, what does the university have that I don't when I'm sitting at my computer? You know, it's difficult to find a lot, right? And and the same thing can be true in it's said in in news. Like, well, what is the CNN or you know, this is happening now with the Joe Rogan versus mass media? It's like, well, <laughs> what do they have? Like, what is this? What is this press room where they're fact finding all the facts? Like, they have this giant machine capable of finding facts in the world. It's like, no, there's just guys on Google, I'm sure, and that's and he's he's just on <laughs> Google. Guys in Google. Yeah, it's like. Yeah, not to knock like real journalism when they're going out. I think that's something that is, but that's not that's not news reporting. It's not. It's different. So, but I think you're right that this this is a uh, you know brought about by the dissemination of information and the ability to communicate instantaneously for free to anybody in the world anytime. 
that just it starts it's like it's like when the tide comes up and there's a sand castle it's like we all know this is going to happen here it's like the the tide is not going to lose like that sand castle is going to be bold you know, I, I actually met an old friend of mine on the on the nj transit train about a couple of years ago and he says he's got an amazing idea i do some investing on the side so he said he's got some amazing ideas and what is it and he says you know i'm going to go to, i'm scanning all these social communities and, and what's going on, and I'm creating a business that feeds that information to the institutional side. No, so it's it's basically taking social insights and giving it as a as a as a data point, and you know, putting that putting what what he said was a good idea. I thought it was a great idea, but the change in landscape is kind of interesting, right? We for decades used to pay for the research data that they did. And now they are paying for the research data that's occurring on the retail sites. It's kind of oh, that is interesting. It's it kind of it's, it's an interesting turn of events. Yeah, it's an interesting flip. Yeah, so much more is happening on social. You know, that's where the ideas seem to live much more so than. By the Discord, mark my words on this, Mike. Discord is going to change. I, oh. I, I I don't mean Discord in particular, but the but that kind of the kind of community that platforms like Discord feed are 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 are, are will change the way um how that social insights basically get basically get consumed and created and 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 curated also is it and i i i'm a big believer um I, i'm i'm beginning to believe more and more why that kind of a, i call it the the social communitization uh, 2.0, right? It's, and it's not on the web. It's on these next generation digital platforms where I think they are, they are communities and platforms by themselves. I'll give you an example of it. Um, we are, we, are, we use what not talk about trading. We offer one of the most popular trading APIs in the market. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we are a big player in that space. We have wrote right now over 40 bots. That people talk on Discord and they're trading through the API on Tucson, all all within the conversation. So, in while you and I are chatting, chatting from Discord, I'm actually trading. Wow, wow, interesting. And do you view that as similar to Twitter? Uh, obviously, Facebook being the oldest one, or do you really view it as like this is this changing? It's not just that Discord is going to lead to the next thing, and that this is becoming more. Is it that that communities are forming around? Like the, you go from Twitter where everyone's in one giant community to discord where they're in like sub communities and Reddit subreddits. That's kind of the trajectory you're alluding to. No, I act, I think, you know, you know, you know, all the large social media companies call themselves platforms and I can, I can yeah. see at some point and it's, it's, it's a word that's so broad. You can put everything in it. Right. But for the first time I see these communities that have got some fundamental elements that make them so much more powerful. Number one is number one is communication is unstructured, right? It's it, it, it's very very unstructured, and each group or community can set up its own way of communicating with each other. So, versus the centralized social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter, you can talk in one forty words. You can you, you, there is a wall, right? Mm-hmm. So that centralized implementation of policy versus Discord kind of communities where each of those groups are all their own meta communities. It's more of a forest of small communities. Yeah. Number one, number two, number two is is technology innovation. That centralized model of social media. Tools to communicate were given by the central agent, right? In these, 
these communities build their own bots. It's a platform. You can write your own. So it, it actually almost gets what I call as technology enabled. So community driven technology enabled buckets. They're on their own platforms. I mean, the example we're talking about the, the, the social bot I was talking about, right? They're talking about options trading. Mm. Options is different than stocks. So, so for this kid who, the amazing kid who wrote this platform on a space called the Options Fan Bot, right? It's not to, I'm going to give him a shout because I, I love it. He's one of the smartest men. But so, and you know, we get thousands, hundreds of thousands of hits every day on that, right? And, and only because when people are talking about options, you can actually just go ahead and you can show, show him a chain as to how to invest. And, and it's just, so if you think about it, it is not a capability that, in this case, a Facebook or Twitter has to create. It's around options trading. And these guys have created a platform in their community. They talk, right? So I call the true, uh, what I call as, um, what I call as decentralization of technology capability and innovation in those communities enables that the complete viralization of those communities. So I think, so when you, when you're able to do, when a community, small or large, can not only build its ability to communicate the way it wants, but also build its own platform, its infrastructure, and be able to operate independently of others. That changes; it'll change every industry. Now, retail investing is at the is in the front because there's a lot of conversation to be had, right? Mm. But I think it's going to change the way it's going to change the way you and I order food. It's going to change the way you and I basically go ahead and get up and do a lot of things during the day. So I'm a big believer in this decentralized social media. That, I, that I've been observing very carefully. So anyway, you got me into thinking what philosophy Interesting. Time. Do you think I should have a around-the-coin Discord community of uh, guests that come in? Yes. Yeah? Yes. I mean, if, I'll tell you one thing. Today, here, here's, and if you've not done it, I mean, to, to an extent, it's talking as, uh, yeah, you, you should jump on it now immediately. You will, so for, it, it is because, see, we're talking, right? So, Mike has Mike has a point of view. Mike has a point of interest, and Mike has a, a collaboration style. Right? There are people who will align with that. For those folks to basically go ahead and interact there, it's it's far more powerful than than it's far more powerful in two way engaging. So if you just I would I think you should try it. You should should pop up Discord today and try to open a small community around the coin community, and you'll see how powerful it'll get very fast. Mm, interesting. You got my engines going. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna dive into that. I appreciate you, man, Dan. I love your energy. You're such a articulate speaker, and you're obviously a prolific writer on uh, other articles, like you mentioned that Dow Dow Jones, I think it was. I, I, I write for NASDAQ. So. NASDAQ, yeah, yeah. So I, I can tell you have a lot of great ideas. So really appreciate you coming on today. I really enjoyed the conversation. Oh, I greatly enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it, man. All right, take it easy, man. Thank you for listening to Around the Coin. If you enjoyed the show today, consider giving us a quick review wherever you listen to podcasts, tweet about it, or text it to a friend. We really appreciate all the support and growing that we can. If you have any guests you'd like us to bring on or feedback for us, don't hesitate to reach out. We would love to hear from you. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. 
Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino style games to choose from, you too could win life changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner.